Coming up on this week's show, Atari ends production of the new VCS. I lost Michael Jackson, said your game is found. <laughs> <laughs> and we got the story of the dig and the curse of Monkey Island with Bill Tiller. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books, Perfect, to start the new year with is Game Boy The Box Art Collection. Now, this colourful book will serve as a vivid reminder of a time when Nintendo's grey little handheld was as prevalent as smartphones are today. So check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay, now they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do services like 3D printing and injection moulding. And you know they're massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 359, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And can we just say a very happy new year? It is a new year, yes. A new year for the Retro Hour. Yeah, first show of 2023. Um, I have to apologise if I'm sounding slightly hoarse. I think probably like most people, maybe a little bit overdid it at Christmas. If you guys were the same. Uh, yeah, probably. I'm, I'm still still feel like I'm recovering a little bit from Christmas. I didn't even drink over New Year. It was Christmas I was yeah. uh, drinking, but the the eating hasn't stopped. I don't know about you guys, but you know, scoffing all the food definitely not stopped. So I was out on my bike exercising, trying to burn oh, yeah, it off you're, recently. You're, you're the yeah. skinny one. You're the good one. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a fridge full of chocolate at the moment, so I need to eat that first, Joe, before the the healthy living kicks in. Oh, I figure yeah. out. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but hope you had a wonderful Christmas and a very happy New Year as well. And uh, thanks for all the comments as well on the Christmas quiz and the best of episodes and really good feedback on that on our Discord and Twitter over the last couple of weeks but we are hitting the ground running with uh, a new guest for the first episode of 2023 and uh, what a guest we've got to kick off the new year Ravi. Oh yes this this interview was absolutely excellent it's uh, with Bill Tiller and um, Bill worked for LucasArts Games and joined a really interesting period which was when the dig came out so yeah. I remember when the dig came out. It came out on CD-ROM. It had all these extra kind of graphics compared to, you know, the Scum games before, but it was still very much had that Scum feeling with it. And it was an epic. It was like, it felt like a huge movie, you know. Coming from LucasArts Games, it was a really interesting project and a totally original thing as well. But then he worked on a, you know, Rebel Assault as well, which... Wow, we talk about that a bit. And that was a groundbreaking game. Um, absolutely genius. I know you like Rebel Assault a bit, Joe. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I, uh, we got it for Christmas in the early 90s, me and my brother, and we used to hammer Rebel Assault and Rebel Assault 2 for the PS1. You know, I remember playing them and being like, it's like real life, I'm in the film. Yeah, that Millennium Falcon <laughs> yeah. scene was just uh, uh, absolutely mind-blowing for me. And mm. um, Dan as well, you know, Curse of Monkey Island, which oh. uh, is one of your favourite titles, isn't it? Yeah, well, Bill, I mean, he's got a really interesting history at LucasArts. Like you mentioned, I mean, we've talked about The Dig before on the podcast. We had Brian Moriarty on and um, Noah Falstein. We talked about it with them. And it was uh, really a game that I think was the longest game that was in production at LucasArts. It started in 1989, didn't come out until 1995, got rebooted twice you know, completely different leads on it, the change of story, the look and everything. But Bill was, um, by the end of it, he was actually the lead 
art designer on it. So really responsible for the look of the game. And also it had graphics in there from Industrial Light and Magic that, you know, did all the movie effects back in the day. So we talk a bit about that, you know, like the, the effects on Star Wars and Ghostbusters. There's, films there's like a that. bit of a chat about Pixar as well. And, you know, uh, some of the company that uh, Bill was studying with, uh, which, you know, it's, it's amazing to see what kind of stuff has, has kind of grown from the animation scene and gone into like digital computer graphics, but also into video games. Yeah, so it was a really exciting time. And then, like you mentioned, Curse of Monkey Island, you know, the, the third game that came along after Ron Gilbert had left LucasArts. And obviously that was, you know, quite a brave thing for them to do, to release a new game without the, the guy that created B- big it. Big change in style, wasn't it? it? Total change of style. Cause, I mean, you think by then, I think it was like 96 that game came out. So um, obviously by then, you know, PC graphics are coming a long way since Monkey Island 2 in 1992. And again, Bill was really responsible for a lot of the look of that game as well. So uh, a really interesting chat if you're a fan of those LucasArts point-and-click adventure games. As you know, Ravi and I are massive fans of those. You know, we can't get enough of talking about that era. So our first guest of 2023, Bill Tiller. He'll be on the podcast in around half an hour from now. Now, uh, lots of new stories to jump into, a bit of a catch-up of what's been happening in the world of retro over the Christmas period before we uh, chat to Bill. But actually, we did have a bit of, well, actually, a couple of sad news stories over the last couple of weeks. Um, We did lose a couple of legends of the industry, didn't we? Uh, Yeah, yeah. We sadly lost um, Archer McLean and uh, Roger Keane as well, Um, two two really important people in the video games industry. And uh, we send our condolences. Yeah, I mean, Roger, I mean, you think of, particularly for people that are outside the UK, they might not realise kind of what a big deal magazines were here in the UK back in the 80s. I mean, you know, Roger Keeney was one of the the masterminds behind Crash and Zap 64. And obviously his partner, Oliver Frey, was um, central in, you know, the success of those magazines as well. Oliver sadly passed away last year. So, uh, you know, very sad to hear that now Roger has passed away too. I mean, you know, if there is somewhere out there in the universe, hopefully, you know, they're reunited and back together again now. Um, but obviously very sad. And there has been a load of tributes, um, particularly a really nice one from Chris Wilkins and Retro Gamer as well. So I'll put a, a link to a few of those in the show notes if you want to read more about that. And um, you mentioned Archie McLean as well. I mean, he was one of my favourite guests we've ever had on this podcast. Do you remember when we spoke to him at Play Expo in London? Yeah, we did a panel with him. Uh, such a nice guy. Re- yeah. Really good. And uh, if you want to hear back, you can listen to our episode with Archer. Re- really interesting chat. Yeah, so uh, very sad news over Christmas, but obviously rest in peace, Roger Keane and Archie McLean. And if you want to read more of their uh, tributes, I'll put some in this week's show notes as well. Now let's catch you up on uh, a few of the news stories because there's been a lot going on since our uh, last normal episode of this podcast. It was probably about a month ago now. So we've uh, picked out a few of the big headlines. Uh, now, this is just an excuse for Ravi to do his Michael Jackson impression, I know. Oh, <laughs> On the well, spot now. Well, we'll talk about the game first, but um, <laughs> this... Well, this is a, a lost Michael Jackson Sega game. Now, this is pretty big news. This is like a dream for Joe, because Joe always talks about Michael Jackson kind of <laughs> Sega-related stuff. Oh, he did the music for Sonic 3. <laughs> well, uh, this this is really interesting. Have you heard of the uh, Sega AS1? Well, I I, I hadn't. Well, I say I hadn't. I'd, I've seen the picture of it before, but I couldn't have ever told you. You know, when I saw the picture of the AS1 reading this article, yeah. I was like, oh, I've seen that before. Um, but I couldn't have told you its name or anything like that. So when I, I've seen this article, like you say, it's been knocking about for a couple of weeks now, this news. But I thought it was like a Mega Drive game or a Sega CD game. But as you say, Ravi, it's for the AS1, um, I want to say arcade cabinet, but it's not. It's like a, a, it's like like a, a simulator, simulator, motion, motion yeah, simulator yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
Like those old ones you get at the fair, but yeah. um, kind of a Sega created one, which is pretty awesome. And uh, you'd play a sim game called Scramble Training on there. Yeah. And with Scramble Training, am I understanding that this game did actually come out for the yeah. AS one? But, but they cut all Michael Jackson out of all, it. I think it was around that time when the, there was a bit of controversy around Jack. Around yeah, that time. controversy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so essentially, what's happened is a private collector in UK in Hampshire, uh, Ben Bisley, I think his name was, um, essentially got his hands on a Fuji film tape from another private collector who had bought it from. I think he'd actually bought it from somebody who worked for Sega. Yeah. And he bought it for only £300, managed to get it from the real to digital, and it's that lost footage um, of Captain Jackson, he's called. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've sat and watched the, uh, I think there's 11 minutes of footage. You know, that's how long the whole game is. And then there's about five minutes of kind of like in between the playing, you know, of the actual game of like Michael Jackson, like kind of like telling you through the story. And it's essentially a space battle in the kind of vein of like, you know, I want I want to say Star Wars Star Trek but it's a little bit more like military like he's like in a flight suit isn't he Yeah like, it yeah. it looks like you know um is it looks like it was done on like DV that was mm. the one Yeah and uh he's taking it off that but he he does look kind of like you know the scream video um yeah. it's, it's a lot <laughs> less polished but uh maybe yeah. maybe he got some inspiration it, from it, uh, it, doing this it reminded me you guys might you might know it captain evo which was a ride at disneyland in the uh disney world in the 80s where he played like a captain of a spaceship with like puppets and stuff and he dances like in space and stuff like that um which was really big in the 80s and the early 90s that they got rid of but it, it's very reminiscent of that if you any listeners know what that is i want to go check out michael jackson captain evo it's very similar to that but it's funny because as the game plays you can hear michael jackson like kind of like saying watch out shoot that one <laughs> like while you're playing when <laughs> you're watching like samples footage. of it and um uh he's like hi i'm commander jackson and uh <laughs> he's uh he's got that kind of you know that time period that it was done where he had that like diana ross kind of um look with his hair and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but yeah, it, it does look interesting. And I think, you know, this could probably be running an emulator. I don't think anyone's going to have the um, uh, simulator at home. But uh, No, yeah, this, so to kind of give some kind of like contest to the simulator, it, they were at Sega World, weren't they? And they are like as big as a house, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah you're not going to fit any game in <laughs> But the thing about it is, I mean, this is only a recording mm. of the footage that would have been used game, in the game, is isn't it? it? No. Yeah. So it's not going to be playable. But like you said, I think, you know, there were actually finished versions of this game with kind of the Michael Jackson footage chopped out. So, I mean, it wouldn't be beyond possibility. You know, there's a lot of very to put clever it, people in the retro. Yeah. To scene, kind of yeah, rebuild to put it back together it. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you would be able to, like Ravi says, get a ROM of the, the original game and then, because this has been digitised as well, and cut out the footage or cut the footage in. I've not played the original, seen the original, so I don't know if there is another act or if there is anything like that or just the voiceover. But I'm sure there could potentially be a way to cut that in, which I'm sure, you know, if, if you that know, is possible, we'll see it at some point. I, I'm surprised that this even made it out because, like, you know, any footage of Michael Jackson dancing or stuff that he didn't want out there was really, like, closed off. And, you know, yeah. I could imagine he would have been like, destroy all the tapes if he wasn't involved, you know. And Which maybe they just pretended they did, you know. Yeah, yeah and maybe someone just sneaked one and kept it at the side. But... For this to come out is like, wow, really rare. And it does show that there was a lot more, um, 
you know, there was a Moonwalker game, there was other stuff, but there was a lot more involvement with him and Sega. Yeah, and I think, you know, in 1993, this would have been a very popular game, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, he did, he was sort of involved in music as well or something. So, you know, that probably helped with his popularity. Did he? Yeah, he was, <laughs> yeah maybe King of Pop or something like that, I heard. <laughs> but yeah, so, and I think, you know, looking at the rest of this game, I think graphically it looks really impressive for 1993. Yeah, it looks like, to me, it looks like a theme park ride more than mm. yeah, something yeah. that would just be in a simulator, you know, it would be something that would, could be sold at like, you know, Universal Studios or something. Yeah, so very cool to see the footage out there. They're not the kind of thing you come across every day. So uh, we uh, await with bated breath for some genius in the retro community to make it a playable game. I'm sure it'll happen. So if you want to check out the uh, the footage so far, if you haven't seen it already, like you said, it's been kind of everywhere over the last couple of weeks, but we'll put it in our show notes. And the rest of the stories at theretrohour.com. Now, something we've been following quite closely for, uh, <laughs> I was going to say what feels like a while, over 20 years actually, is that uh, Duke Nukem forever now we did mention last year that that kind of build of duke nukem forever not the terrible release version that came out back in like 2011 but the version that actually looked half decent that was shown at e3 back in 2001 there were some builds of that that were found and there had been efforts from fans to make it a playable game and it looks like there have been quite a few developments in that over christmas yeah so first we'll cover the kind of leaks that have come out and then we'll talk about the playable game because there's quite a lot here. But um, as we know, Duke Nukem Forever took pretty much forever to make and (laughs) it went through so many different engines that there were lots of different versions. And, you know, a lot of these versions were shown at shows. Um, People saw clips of them and stuff, but uh, never got a chance to play them. Recently, there's been a ton of leaks and um, one of them was... uh, one of the original Duke Nukem Forevers that actually came out that's going into a restoration project that we're talking about. But another one's just popped up that Joe showed me, which is Duke Nukem as a side-scroller, which yeah. uh, is pretty like, you know, Commander Keen and like the original Duke Nukem. Yeah, so this is interestingly Duke Nukem Forever, but it's spelt number four EVA. And uh, essentially, this was being worked on in 1996, and it was going to be a follow-up to Duke Nukem 3D. 3D. But it was obviously taking it back to its roots, you know, the side-scrolling element of it, but it was using digitised versions of the 3D models. So they'd got Mm. the 3D models from, you know, Duke Nukem 3D and digitised it and kind of made this very digital-looking Mortal Kombat-esque kind of, like, claymation-looking game, um, in my opinion. And essentially what happened was they've interviewed a guy who was working on it called Darren Hurd, who said what happened was the game got scrapped because of the popularity of 3D games and, you know, 3D was the future. And it looks like a really interesting game. It, it really reminds me... It kind of reminds me of, like, Flashback. Um, and yeah, it feels... A little it- bit. It feels like abuse as well, which was yeah. a good one. And uh, or gods, if you remember, gods a bit, my brother. Yeah, yeah, but it looks dossy, doesn't it? Because it's more kind of chunky and a, a bit of a higher resolution and slightly kind of digitized. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I really like the um, the origins of the name Duke Nukem Forever. And what he says is the you know the female lead of the game who is trying to rescue is called Eva or Eva. And it was a it was a pun on words. It was you know Duke Nukem because he's in love with her and he fancies her. And it was Duke Nukem forever, as in he's for her, like you know for Eva. For Eva. Ah, and okay. 
what happened was eventually the name just translated. It just became forever, Duke Nukem Forever. And that's where the name kind of came from. So none of this was used in the kind of like Duke Nukem Forever bills that kind of came after this. But the name, this is kind of where it started with the name and everything. And then it just took, what, 15 years for it actually to come out in 2011 after that. Um, But as you both say, um, this isn't the only thing that's been leaked, revealed over the last kind of week over Christmas. There's also been, don't know if you guys have seen, Duke Nukem uh, Forever um, First Slice, which is one of the builds, and then also Duke Nukem Endangered Species. (laughs) Yeah, also, just looking at this as well, the Duke Nukem movie pitch for... 2010 has had its first draft also leaked. Oh, wow. I didn't um, see that yeah. one. So there's like been a whole load of Christmas Duke Nukem releases. But the first Slice one seems really interesting because they've done a lot of work on this to actually uh, release it. Well, to, to, to do the first level. Yes. So this is, so, so to set this, this is the, the 3D Duke Nukem Forever one yeah, that we we've one, been waiting one, for the one of the three D Duke Nukem Forever, yeah. the one that looks good. Yeah, the one that well, looks good. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. were a few announcements, and uh, this was the one that a lot of people were looking forward to. So yeah, so this is playable, um, and this has been so. This is a working release of the two thousand and one build of Duke Nukem Forever, which was in the first Unreal Engine, um, yeah. and this has been made by uh, a team called Duke Nukem Forever Restoration Project. Um, and they put it together really quickly and it looks really impressive, but what they've managed to put together and put in a playable state and they've also released it. So it works on modern consoles and you can also interestingly um, look at it and play it in its like original state, which is really cool. But they've done chapter one of the story uh, restored, which is the first nine levels of the game, as well as an additional secret level, a test map, which is in a real early test, like kind of like, you know, beta state. I've been watching the video um, as well as some of the multiplayer levels in there as well, along with 12 usable weapons and enemies and stuff like that. So it's in a really nice playable state, and it's got that real kind of like early 2000s PC, PS2. Really it, reminds it reminds me, of me so much of Postal. Yes, yeah, I was getting well, from it as well. Yeah, I can see that as well, yeah. yeah. I, I guess just the way that the uh, people are running around, it, they've got that kind of Postal run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And then as well as that, We've then got Duke Nukem Endangered Species, which was also a cancelled Duke Nukem game from May 2000, um, which looks really similar. There's not as much on that one, uh, but that one looks pretty, you know, it's very similar to Duke Nukem Forever, first-person shooter, but you're fighting dinosaurs and gorillas and stuff like that by the looks of things. Um, So if you're into Duke Nukem, a hell of a lot flying around. Yeah, it it seems to be a group called XOR underscore jmp or x or mm. jump and um they're posting on 4chan and all this stuff's kind of going out there as well and they're saying you know it's been a productive month for us <laughs> i've got a feeling 3d realms might want to beef up their security a little bit you know? yeah, maybe. <laughs> stronger passwords or something yeah <laughs> but it's uh it is amazing I mean, it's particularly that Duke can forever playable demo i mean the fact that how long was it since that first got leaked? It must only be about a year. Was the it, fact they made so much progress in like 12 months. Um, I don't even think it was a year. 3D Realms couldn't do it in like 10, 15 years. Yeah, they couldn't do it, they <laughs> couldn't do it in 15 it. Well, years. Well, like this side scrollers yeah. playable as well. Like they're, they're, they're yeah. there's all like, you know, if you're a Duke fan, then uh, one day you'll probably get this like fan-made Duke Nukem Forever pack that will have like every yeah. version in it. <laughs> every version of it that's come out in the last like 20, well, 25 years now. 
Yeah, so uh, what a time to be a Duke fan. So uh, plenty to get your teeth into. And if you want to get hold of uh, all of those and check out the videos of the, uh, the ones that you can't play so far, I'll, of course, link those up in our show notes as well. Right, next we're going to be talking about Atari. Bit of an update on the uh, the VCS. Is it all over? Before we do that, though, let's just take a moment to give a massive thank you and a very happy new year to our wonderful patrons. Now, of course, these are people who allow us to bring the Retro Hour to you every single Friday. And uh, we did have a great little hangout with our patrons just before Christmas. A um, little Christmas party that we had a couple of weeks ago. And if you don't know about this, this is something that we do every single month, isn't it? We get as many of our patrons that want to come on and join us a bit of a Google Hangout, last Sunday of every month, we crack a drink and just really geek out about all things retro, gaming, tech, movies, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really good fun and they're, they're a great group and like we want to try and get them more involved in the show as well. So we've yeah. got some plans coming up for that. But um, yeah, that Christmas one was great. I think we even had someone turn up like Pete completely dressed as Santa. Oh, uh, yeah. Full beard, full <laughs> The retro full hour costume, Toronto, yeah. wasn't it? I think what I really like about it, and, you know, we always talk about, like, it becomes a bit of a user's group and stuff like that, but I genuinely feel like I'm, I mean, maybe they're, like, laughing at me for saying this, any of the listeners, but I feel like I'm friends with some of these guys now. Like, we've got, you know, each other on our personal, like, you know, Facebooks and Instagrams, yeah. and we talk and wish, each, you know, like, wish each other happy birthdays and stuff, and get an insight into people's life a little bit. You know, that's not ha- that's not how it has to be. You know, you can get involved as much or as little as you want if you come to these things. But if you want that community feel from it, like it, it really feels like I'm hanging out with my mates now, which I really, really and, love. And I like the fact it's everybody from all around the world as well. It's such mm, a yeah. international oh, yeah. group that you're getting, you know, stories from America, you're getting them from Swedish countries. Uh, it's just fantastic. Yeah, and it, like you said, it's just a way to connect with other like-minded people, mm, isn't it? Yeah. Just great fun. I mean, we, we do the Hangout at the end of every month. We have a Discord that we're active in all week as well. And uh, for joining us on Patreon as well, our gold members and above get an extra podcast each month, a bonus podcast called The Retro Hour After Hours, of which the uh, the latest episode of that is available now. We talked about arcades in the current one, don't we? Actually going through our uh, top five arcade games. So, And that's nearly two-hour episodes. So if you've got any memories of those uh, you know, 80s and 90s, Endless summers at the arcades. Uh, definitely be interested in that, I'm sure. So you can check that out. And uh, really, the main reason that you're joining us on Patreon is just to make sure that we can continue to bring this podcast out for you every Friday throughout 2023. And for joining us on there, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. And let's welcome in the latest members into the Hall of Fame. A massive thank you to Trey Causey, Lucas Valadez. Kieran Masterton and Graeme Scott who all joined us on Patreon over the last few weeks your support is massively appreciated and if you'd like to join the Retro Hour Patreon community in 2023 all the details to sign up are at theretrohour.com Right then we're going to be going inside LucasArts with our first guest of the year Bill Tiller he'll be coming up in just a minute before that a couple of other quick stories to get through and uh, this one caught my attention as uh, one of uh, I believe only around 10,000 people in the world, it turns out, we've actually got one of the uh, new Atari VCS consoles, um, thanks to one of our wonderful patrons, actually, who uh, who donated that to the show a couple of years ago. Um, it turns out, though, that apparently there's been rumours that it's all over. Apparently, Atari are ending production of the new Atari VCS. I, I'm still surprised it came out, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so well, I'm not surprised to see this. It's interesting, though, because, yeah, judging by everything I've read, and, I mean, there are some the main source of this appears to be an investor meeting 
Editori, there's a PDF file that actually is on Wikipedia where they kind of talk about the fact that they'd sold around 10,000 consoles up until November last year. So in terms of sales, I mean, 10,000, it's probably not enough to warrant much interest outside of Atari to make games for this system. Even though they have released the um, Atari 50 collection onto the Atari VCS, I think a couple of months after it came out and everything else. But um, yeah, it turns out that they've um, actually had a bit of a bad time of it in 2022 and Atari have actually lost quite a bit of money on yeah. their rebooted Atari VCS console. It well, out. it's also saying that, um, you know, we've seen a crypto crash and they did a lot of stuff with crypto yeah. technology and um, NFTs and, you know, put a lot into that. And uh, yeah, that's all kind of totally hit the floor. Um, so I can imagine they're not making much profit either from this because it was it was interesting. It was a it was a modern Atari console, but um, it had a custom board in there as well. It wasn't just you know put on a kind of standard chip or or done like some of the mini consoles. It had a custom board that was um, quite powerful, but a bit underpowered for the price. And then it had actually the the biggest asset I always thought was the case. I was yeah. thought if they just not put the custom board in there and sold the empty case then they probably would have sold a lot more. Yeah, it's interesting. I also saw that they were doing, you know, sales in like commercial retailers in America and stuff. And it was like... Well, fire sales, really. Yeah. Let's try and get rid of them. On, on the think. shelves which, which and it, stuff. Like, like, Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's the thing. Because, I mean, you mentioned it's a custom board in there, but the onboard components are just off-the-shelf PCs. Yeah. Um, even though they're designed, you know, it fits in the case and they actually made the, the boards themselves. But really, you're talking something like a, an Intel Nook. Mm-hmm. is in there you know it's nothing more powerful than a, a little pc that you can sit behind your tv in your living room really and i did a video on the atari vcs when it first came out and i got windows running on it but one thing i found is you know it chugged along quite a bit when you're running you know windows 10 on there and you know it's not really up to playing many games at decent performance you know many modern games but it does make a nice little emulation box i mean in my mind it kind of fits the gap of uh something like the Ouya a couple of years ago, you know, kind of a little mini console, or micro console, I believe they were called, where you can run a lot of emulators on there and everything, which, you know, for the price point they were selling them off at, I did see some people picking them up for around, I think, $150. Yeah. Which kind of feels like, you know, if they'd have sold it at that price point originally, maybe it would have done a bit better. But, I mean, looking at the the metrics and the, their figures, apparently Atari had a 92% decrease in hardware revenue year on year, and uh, their sales dropped from $2.44 million to only two hundred and twelve thousand dollars in twenty twenty two. And they're blaming that for a decline in cartridge activity and their underperformance by the Atari VCS as well. So apparently they've kind of cut ties with the company that were manufacturing the VCS. So it looks like they're not making any new ones, but they have said they're going to continue to support the console and people that want to order it, they have still got stock of it. I I found it really I found it was interesting that they were moving in this direction of actually like, you know, creating a console and stuff. They were also doing a lot of like releases of the older stuff and they've started to kind of go into that. So I remember there was a point where they put in like uh, 7,800 games on there. There was a whole thing about their legacy catalog and stuff. Um, But there wasn't those exclusive titles that made people, you know, want to buy it. And uh, yeah, I think that was a big issue, but um, it was interesting to see them try it and attempt it. But I, I wasn't sure, you know, if in America it would have been massively popular because there's that huge, you know, background of Atari there. 
but yeah. But they're selling these things for $300 or, or $400, you know. If you yeah, it was overkill and like you can't, you can't use it as a normal PC. Well, you can, but it's, it's still a bit underpowered, isn't it? We've got to mess around to get Windows installed on there, which, you know, you kind of got to jump through a few hoops. And one thing I found when, when I was running Windows on it is the fans ramp up every okay. time, even when you move the mouse, the fans go vroom, vroom, like that. And it's like, it's very annoying using it as a, a standard PC. But really, I mean, we talked about this when it first came out, you know, it's just who the hell was this thing aimed at? I saw disaster on this from day one. Yeah. But, you know, kind of talking about that. I've also seen a few people, uh, a friend of mine on Facebook actually pre-ordered the Intellivision Amico off Amazon. Yeah. And, and apparently he got, he got an alert saying that it's out for delivery. So <laughs> we'll see what, what this week brings. So it could be, again, I mean, it's just who the hell are these things aimed at? That's the it, thing. For like, me, I, I think, saw that it was never going to I think work. that models like the Avocade are great and successful and they've come out yeah. from a different kind of thing, but they're aiming to, to, to not recreate the past in a modern kind of form. That, you know, it's, it, it's interesting where, where, the Amico seems like it's really an attempt to, you know, bring back in television. And this was kind of an attempt to bring back Atari where something like the Avocade is, we're going to play everything on it, you know, and I think that's a better kind of strategy. See, I've got the Atari 50 collection and I've got it on the PS5. I didn't buy it on the Atari VCS just because I haven't got any confidence in that machine's service still been online in a year. Ah, true. Well, you can add it to your OUYA devices now. It'll go on the shelf next to your gathering dust, I imagine now. But um, yeah, it was an interesting effort. But, uh, you know, it is always cool to see new hardware coming out and having, you know, new consoles added to the market. Because, you know, it does get a bit boring just having kind of three players yeah. in the console space. But I think it's just they've got to have a market and they've got to do something original. And I hope it doesn't put them off. Oh, it probably will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would, would you guys buy one, even if you got one for like £100 now, if they were doing a fire sale? Nah. <laughs> no. I'm no, just you, sat here quietly no listening like, nah. Nah, not even no for the case, to be honest. I mean, if I saw one for like 30, 40 quid, then I'd pick it up just to put it on display in the room. But I can't imagine I'd ever fire it up. I'd, I'd much rather, for that kind of money, I'd much rather get the Amiga Mini or something, or an Evercade, as Ravi said. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. I think, you know, all those kind of bases that covered the Evercade's got the kind of the modern retro system covered. you got the mini consoles for the old school stuff. So it would have made more sense for them to do kind of a an Atari VCS Mini, I you, suppose, You should say it? to your kid, Joe, this is the only console that we have. And yeah. <laughs> Razor in an alternate reality. Yeah, where... An alternate reality where this is like the best-selling console. Atari Jaguar was, you know, you know, smashed the PlayStation. Hey, don't be slagging the Jaguar <laughs> off. Enough of that. Put it in the same category. It sold a lot more than the new Atari VCS, I'll have you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they say they're going to keep supporting it, but I've got to admit my hopes aren't high. So if you do have uh, one of the new Atari VCSs, uh, enjoy it while you can. Now, you talked about the Atari Jaguar there, though. I've got to say, you know, that was one of the few consoles back in the 90s that was going to have its own virtual reality headset, you know, going to give it a few brand new... Even that never came out. Um, another system, though, that was also going to get a virtual reality headset, and I'd kind of forgotten about this until I read this headline, but we have talked about this before. There was going to be a virtual reality headset for the Sega Mega Drive. Yeah, so in 1993, it was announced there was going to be the, you know, the, the 3D headset for the Mega Drive, and it was actually shown at the summer CES in 93, and it was had a release price of $200, but former president Tom Kalinske of Sega, um, I think he quietly kind of cancelled it in 1993 because of the testing went really horrible, 
Um, it was apparently making users really, really poorly. It was giving them really bad motion sickness. You know, I tried I know the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried the master system. What is it? Stereoscopic 3D one, I think. And God, I've never felt sicker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we actually covered that um, when the headset was unearthed. Um, I want to say in 2020, maybe a few years ago. I could, I could be remembering that wrong. Um, but quite a bit of like the uh, the code from it and stuff like that's been leaked over the last kind of couple of years. Um, and a a gaming historian, best way probably to describe him, Dylan Mansfield who's a, uh, I think he's the head of the Video Game History Foundation, and he's part of Gaming Alexandria. Um, really, really, you know, clued up guy with his tech and everything like that. He has actually reached out to one of the uh, developers on a game called Nuclear Rush, um, which was meant to be a, you know, Sega 3D headset game. And uh, he's actually sent over, the developer has sent to Dylan all the code, all, you know, the kind of final build of the game, and um, what Dylan's managed to do is he's managed to get it playable on a modern VR set uh, headset. I think oh, wow. he's got it on a is it a HT Vive or uh, yeah? So this thing called Open VR, which is um, mm. basically within Steam, uh, yeah. but you know a lot of people have been playing emulators on it, and we've seen a lot of people playing retro games in VR. And this is kind of um, with that developer's version, he's kind of managed to hook that up, and uh, you know. Um, some of the control ports and stuff are actually like working with the VR motion. Cause he said that there wasn't uh, all the key files there. There's a few missing files uh, with the VR system, but he's, he's actually running it, which is pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, it looks, it looks like it's running all right as well. It looks quite a basic game as well. Cause I mean, all he's really doing is he's looking around this landscape and he's like driving, you know, some kind of, nuclear weapon it looks like hover, hover, <laughs> hover, i think it's a, a futuristic hovercraft it's meant to be and all you do is kind of point your head there's crosshairs in the middle of the screen and you just look at the enemies to shoot okay so there's not really a lot to do apart from looking at things by the looks of it yeah um what i find really interesting about it though is he thinks he's worked out why it was making so many people poorly and sick and stuff like that um so the game was running running at um 30 frames per second but then what was happening was it was then getting split to a 15 frames per second refresh rate per eye. And the, oh, because it's in two, yeah, two separate images. And then the way the headset communicated with the Genesis, which it was using its second controller port, apparently, that was like how it was designed to work. The way it communicated, they never really got it like... I don't, you know, I'm not a technical guy, but it wasn't quite how it should have been. I guess um, you can't send much data down there. So yeah, you can't send... What it was doing was it was making the refresh rate kind of really nauseating for people, and just mm. you know it was just re- really really slow. Um, and I guess I guess that would just really kind of take you out of the experience and probably give you a headache and motion sickness. Um, I mean, you're talking about a machine with a seven megahertz CPU, yeah, sixty four k of RAM. <laughs> no, yeah, and doing VR on that's ambitious. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he's got it running at seventy two hertz on the modern setup he's got, which is just pretty impressive to be honest. I mean, I don't know who if there's much of a market for this these days, but it's it's fun. Well, way. essentially, it's a it's a Sega VR emulator at the moment that he's released, and he's put the uh, codes up on GitHub. And um, then there's uh, Nuclear Rush as well, and uh, there's also uh, one called Mon- Sega Monster Hunt as well, mm. which uh, looks like well, it's meant to be. Um, well, it's meant to be four games in development for it. There's a list of them actually on Wikipedia: Nuclear Rush, Iron Hammer, Matrix Runner, and Outlaw Racing. Although interestingly, apparently Sega announced that Virtual Racing 
was in development for it as well, but there's not really been any, you know, more word on that. Yeah. But that'd be interesting to play, wouldn't it, in VR? I can, that, I, that would I can make imagine me sick. it might happen. <laughs> yeah. Especially in the original <laughs> setup. <laughs> you know, one thing I've got to say about the Sega Mega Drive VR, though, is, I mean, I'll put a picture on the, the Ask Technica article in our show notes. It looks badass, though, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it looks cool. You know, that's yeah. that's what the future was in 1993. <laughs> yeah. It looks like the Mega Drive. It's black. It's got like a red stripe around yeah. it as well. Looks very cyberpunk. Yeah. A lot cooler than the Oculus Quest or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. It looks cool as hell. So, uh, yeah, if you've uh, ever been interested in uh, what games would be like in virtual reality on the Sega Mega Drive, um, maybe don't eat dinner before you play it. But uh, I'll put a link to that where you can play it if you've got a, a VR headset that's capable. And all the other stories we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. So Bill Tiller, our special guest, going inside LucasArts. He's on the show in just a moment. Before we do that, let's give a quick mention to this week's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, I don't know about you guys. Have you uh, rinsed pretty much everything on your streaming platforms over Christmas? It was oh, yeah. tough, wasn't it, trying to find out what was on which platform. You know, you used to get your Radio Times and check it out. Yeah. And now I was like, <laughs> well, where are the Christmas specials? What's going on? And yeah, I totally rinsed Netflix. Well, that's the thing, because I mean, if you've uh, you know, had a couple of weeks at home, you might have seen everything you want on your local Netflix. But did you know there are Netflix servers? all around the world, and many of which have got different programs on there because of different licensing agreements. And ExpressVPN allows you to unlock these. So they kind of compare it to, imagine going to a casino and you're only allowed to play the slot machines. Why limit yourself? You know, the big money's somewhere else. So using ExpressVPN, you can basically pretend, fool Netflix into thinking that you're in different countries around the world and access these exclusive libraries to that country. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And actually, it's really fast as well. So, you know, uh, you're pretending you're in another country, but you're also doing it in HD with a yeah. zero buffering, which really makes it, uh, you know, good to watch stuff. And uh, there's a couple of exclusive titles that I've been really enjoying on the US Netflix. Uh, one I know is one of Joe's favorite films, uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone in a cliffhanger. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. A cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, also uh, Kid and Play, if you remember that house party. Oh, <laughs> the soundtrack on that film is worth watching. Oh, yeah, totally. And, yeah, j- uh, j- just watching the movie alone for I love a bit of NCIS as well. Yeah, these are all stuff that are on the American Netflix Ravi's been watching over the last couple of weeks. And like you said, I mean, the thing about ExpressVPN is zero buffering, streaming HD, you don't have to wait around for it. And you can get it on all your devices as well. Yeah, I've, I've got it installed on my laptop, so... Uh, you know, wherever I am, I just fire up my laptop and automatically it connects to ExpressVPN. You can get it on your phone as well, your consoles, your smart TVs, and they've got servers in 94 different countries. And it works with other streaming platforms, BBC iPlayer, Hulu, that kind of thing too. So be smart and stop paying full price for streaming services and get only access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth by joining ExpressVPN. And actually, if you use our exclusive code, you will get an extra three months of ExpressVPN on top of a one-year plan for free. So use it right now, expressvpn.com slash retro. And of course, you'll be really helping out the podcast by taking advantage of our offers, expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support of our show. Right then, next, time to talk to our first guest of 2023 and what a guest to kick off the year. Talking about classics like The Dig, Curse of Monkey Island and lots more as well with LucasArts graphic legend Bill Tiller. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. 
You're listening to the Retro Owl podcast and it is time to welcome on our first guest of 2023 and what a guest to kick the year off as well. Someone who's worked on some of our favourite games, you know we're all big fans of point-and-click adventure games, classics like The Curse of Monkey Island, The Dig, Indiana Jones and the Infernal Machine and lots more as well with this week's special guest, Bill Tiller. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate uh, getting a chance to be on your show. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some of your stories about, you know, LucasArts. We've done quite a few episodes on that company, but we can't get enough of it. You know, it's just one of the most legendary companies. And being adventure game fans, you know, we can't wait to hear some of your stories. So it's always nice to kind of go back to day one, though, because obviously, I mean, you know, graphics is mainly where, where you've worked in these games. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you interested in art when you were a kid then? And what, what were kind of your earliest influences that got you into art? Uh, yeah, yeah. I started drawing like right away. My grandmother was an artist. Um, she used to do a lot of landscape painting. Um, she's really good with color. So I think there might be a little little bit of genetics involved in that too. But yeah, my mom just bought endless amount of art supplies for us. She said there's two things she would spend money on, whatever we wanted. You know, we couldn't necessarily buy toys or, you know, go to the amusement parks or whatever. But she said for sure, the two things that you I'll buy for you, um, you know, whenever you want is art supplies and books. So not surprisingly, those are the two things I, I'm into. I'm into writing and creating and, and also doing artwork. So I have to give a tip my hat with my mom for that. So I uh, appreciate that. So yeah, yeah, I was just influenced by the same stuff everybody else was uh, when I was a kid, which is, you know, Disney films and, you know, children's books. And, you know, I was really into like any sci-fi show like Star Trek or Space 1999 or um, anything, you know, that was out at that time. I would just start drawing and I'd be drawing you know, spaceships and, you know, robots and comic book superheroes all the time. I wasn't very good at it, but at, at the time I was just having fun, you know, and uh, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty much the beginning of my love of uh, art, but I also was a big fan of films. So I watched endless amount of films, um, lots of, uh, lots of monster movies, a lot of sci-fi and monster movies. I, I watched a lot as a kid, especially like uh, creature features in the afternoon. There was just endless amount of, you know, monster black and white universal movies and and that sort of stuff. And plus my birthday is like the day after Halloween. So I'm big into Halloween uh, because I'd always have a birthday party on Halloween. And uh, I just, I loved all that stuff when I was a kid. And then when I got older, you know, Star Wars obviously blew me away. And I got to be a big fan of um, the the original Star Wars poster. uh, If you guys remember that one, I think that was the UK poster. It's the one where Luke's holding up the uh, lightsaber and Princess Leia is kind of a, at his leg and R2-D2 are in the back. So I really love those guys and, and uh, Ralph McQuarrie, uh, the guy who does all the designs for Star Wars. So I, I became like uh, a huge fan of their artwork and tried to emulate that. I love that every year you had a fancy dress birthday. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Halloween, yeah. Um, I, was, I was wondering what your first video game experience was then. Uh, pretty early. I, I looked out, I had a, a grandfather who was a pretty wealthy and he had to have the first of everything. He always tried to find unique things that other rich people didn't have and get it right away. And so he jumped on Pong. As soon as Pong came out, he had it right away and we started playing Pong. And I was just like, whoa, this is the coolest thing ever. I was just, I was just hooked. And then he, um, and my grandmother took me on a cruise, uh, you know, on, on the Caribbean cruise. And uh, I was like, cool, I'm a kid. I'm going to go on a cruise. But I spent almost all my time on this new thing called Space Invaders. My grandma was just beside herself. She's like, I'm taking you to the Caribbean. Check out all this great 
stuff. You're going to, you know, how many kids get to go to the Caribbean? And you're stuck over here, you know, hours straight putting quarters into uh, Space Invaders. <laughs> so nice. I know. It's just like I spent th- thousands of dollars putting you on a cruise, and here you are playing Space Invaders. And uh, I also got an Apple II Plus. My folks bought an Apple II Plus, and we started playing games on that. Uh, and I, I just loved it. I was blown away. Played Zork. Play Ultima. Oh my God, I played Ultima. That was the first time I ever played a game all the way until dawn, until the sun came up. I played Ultima. So yeah, those are probably my first uh, my first video games. And you know, I started programming my own. I wanted to learn how to program video games. So I started learning basic and how to program video games. My video games were terrible. They're very slow and they would flash a lot. And uh, my friends would be like, okay, whatever, Bill. I'm like, hey, look at this thing I programmed. They're like, yeah, it's really slow. I hate it. And then I just dying to do some graphics for it. And so the Apple II Plus does not have good graphics. It's got like six colors at the most on the high-res mode. And, uh, you, you know, we didn't have a tablet or anything at the time or a scanner or anything. So I had to actually draw using uh, paddles, you know, sort of like mm-hmm. uh, with Etch-a-Sketch. So that was fun. Oh, interesting. I, yeah, I got really good at that drawing that and then finally i learned how to program so i just like would draw something on graph paper and then number the graph paper and then program in each individual line well how did you transition from you know doing this in your room at home on your machine to actually entering the industry because i know you joined lucas arts or lucasfilm games as it was then in 1992 so how did your career path take you there well uh i was really like i said i was really interested in like four things and after I got out of high school, um, public school, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I knew I was interested in a lot of different things, but I wasn't sure which one to do. So before I spent, you know, you know, tens of thousand dollars on college or my parents taking out loans and or paying for it, I decided I'll go to junior college, which is like only a hundred dollars for the whole year, take as many classes as you want. And uh, I just focused on fine art, computer graphics, which is 2D and 3D animation and live action filmmaking and i just did that for two years and i discovered my favorite thing to do was work on the computer doing art on the computer at that time i finally had amigas this is like 1988 and amigas had you know 64 colors or 256 colors so i was blown away i'm like oh wow these things are great and the graphics are really good i don't know if you ever heard of the amiga computers oh we're big fans yeah yeah i had a Amiga 500 and then they finally got the Amiga 2000s i was like yeah this thing's great so for two years i did nothing but amiga stuff and a lot of animation on it and i did some character animation too on, on paper so i took a traditional like disney uh animation class where i learned how to you know flip the pages and and animate that way um and that was fun too i just preferred the computer so uh, with my portfolio, I heard about this school called um, CalArts, and it was um, created by Walt Disney back in the 60s, late 60s, and finally came together in the 70s. And uh, they just looked at your portfolio, you know, just like a regular art school. And I was like, cool, I got to go there because my grades are terrible. Um, I have like ADHD, so like homework was just uh, it was just painful. I couldn't do homework. It was just so, so difficult. So my grades were not great. And so I got into uh, CalArts. Initially, I was in the, their experimental animation program, and I didn't really like it that much because uh, it was just experimental stuff. Uh, do you guys remember that uh, video for that pop song back in the 80s called um, Take On Me by AHA? Do you remember that? Oh, well, oh the, yeah, the hand-drawn one. Where it was yeah, like it was all sketch. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was that kind of animation that they did. In fact, that guy went to the program that I got into, the guy who did that video, 
that was one of his student films was almost exactly like that, where he rotoscoped, sketched all that stuff. Uh, so that was the kind of stuff they did, stuff that you would see on MTV. And I was like, nah, I'm more interested in Disney kind of stuff. So I transferred over to the Disney program. Um, and that's where like I met a bunch of really good artists who are now, you know, Pixar legends and artists and my teachers, you know, my animation teacher is the director of Frozen and <clears throat> one of my, you know, classmates is Pete Doctor who runs Pixar now. So I just got totally pulled into the world of animation at that point, Disney animation and Pixar wasn't even a thing then, you know, John Lasseter would come down and say, Hey, come work for this new company I'm making, you know? Um, and uh, Brad Bird was like, Hey, there's this new TV show called Simpsons. You guys should come work on it. Um, so like, okay, yeah, that sounds fun. Um, you know, I had, at the time I didn't realize these guys were going to be these, these, these great, you know, famous filmmakers at the time, but I got a really good education there and did a lot of animation and I did a lot of animation on the Amigas on, on computers using like a video toaster. Remember video toaster? Oh yes. yeah. And uh, Deluxe yes. Paint, I guess you were going crazy on that. Yeah. Well. Deluxe Paint. Absolutely. Yeah. I did a lot of, yeah, a lot of D-Paint animation. A lot of my, uh, you know, classmates, they preferred just working on the paper. You know, and they thought the computer was weird. They didn't want to go anywhere near it. Um, but I was totally on it because, you know, I, I had already been playing with computer and animation, you know, at home on my Apple Plus. So it was it was just like natural for me to jump into that. So at the end of the four years, my portfolio was filled with a lot of that stuff. And um, Colette Mashad um, from LucasArts came down because we have this thing at the end of the year called the Producer Show where we invite a bunch of companies and producers to come and look at the CalArts animation students' uh, portfolios. And she came down and saw my portfolio, and you know it was had a lot of D-Paint stuff in it, which is what LucasArts was using at the time. And she needed an animator for this you know Spielberg game called The Dig. And uh, she said, yeah, look, take a look at what we're doing. And she would show me um, animation from Fate of Atlantis, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. And I was blown away. I was like, oh, I haven't played computer games since Apple II Plus. Because for four years at college, I was, you know, I just used a computer for art. So I hadn't got a chance to play any video games at that time. Uh, I know you guys asked about if I had ever played much adventure games. But no, not really. The only ones were like the um, text parser ones, you know, like Zork. Yeah. And I think there was on a dungeon one. I forget which one that one was. And laser, laser suit, Larry, the first one. <laughs> the classic. Uh, you, yeah. you must have been kind of blown away then, uh, you know, to actually yes. got in contact with like Lucas Arts and you know being a Star Wars fan as well and stuff. Yeah, like uh, to have that opportunity there, even if you didn't know about the point and clicks. What was it like? Yeah, that was that was exciting. So I talked to her. She was really open. She loved my stuff. This was at school, and she said, "Yeah, come and uh, you know, come up and do a test. You know, come up." And uh, I was all excited because my parents were like, uh, is Bill even going to get a job? Is he going to have to live with us the rest of, my, you know, rest of my life? So I got to LucasArts and it wasn't at the ranch. Unfortunately, they had just moved from the ranch. So I missed the ranch by you know, about six months. They moved down to this uh, area called the Canal District right next to where ILM was, Industrial Light Magic. So we were like, we could knock on the door, you know, the wall and, and annoy people at ILM. So we were right next door. So I got to check it out. And it used to be Lucas Attractions, this um, office that we were in. Uh, Lucas Arts uh, or George had his own company that was going to make amusement park attractions. And, uh, you know, they started designing roller coasters and stuff. And they were even designing a restaurant based on the Titanic until 
you know, somebody pointed out, hey, you know, making a restaurant based on the Titanic where thousands of people drowned is, is not cool. But, you know, mm. there was concept <laughs> art. Yeah, they had a whole concept art where the whole restaurant would be tilted to the right and water would be pouring in and stuff. It was a terrible idea. But uh, it was cool. They left all this, you know, these models and roller coaster models everywhere and so forth. It was a cool looking building. George, you know, spent money making making the interior look cool with exposed wiring and cool buildings and just tons of like matte paintings from Star Wars everywhere. So as soon as I walked in, I was like, whoa, is that an R2 unit? You know, and Sean would take me around to ILM and I saw an actual R2 unit, Slimer from Ghostbusters and you know, all this stuff. So yeah, I was, I was definitely blown away. I was like very excited. I was like, Oh my God, I'm touching R2D2. You know, I was like, that's my favorite character in star Wars. So I was totally excited. I had a little bit of, you know, experience with Lucas and Lucasfilm because my dad lived right there in Marin County and he was a building inspector and he would take me out to the ranch while I was being built and show me everything that George was building. So I kind of knew everything about the ranch when I was a kid because my dad, actually took me out there and I got to see it being built. So that was pretty cool. But to actually see the, the models and the props and the, the map paintings, um, that was pretty cool. And the actual star Wars gun, those things are heavy. You know, <laughs> I thought they were going to be a little plastic toy. They're, they're heavy duty. Um, so that, you know, and then I look at like a stormtrooper helmet. And I'm like, this is a piece of crap. It just got, it's just hand painted on there. And I thought it was going to be, you know, super realistic. It was just like this simple little prop. So that was pretty cool. Uh, so I was excited. Um, but then he sat me down, uh, not on Amiga, but an IBM, you know, computer with DOS. And I was like, what's, what's DOS? Where's the mouse? You know, why don't, why am I not clicking on icons and stuff? You know, cause I was used to the Amiga and he's like, well, we're going to do, um, we're going to do D paint. We work on IBM computers cause they're the most popular, you know, um, DOS machines. And, uh, this game is going to do rotoscoping. So we're going to rotoscope. Uh, so here is Brian Moriarty walking on a treadmill. Now draw Boston Lowe, the main character from uh, The Dig. Draw over him and do a walk cycle. I was like, really? <laughs> it's like, that that's what I'm doing? I'm, I'm going to be rotoscoping? I didn't think I was going to be rotoscoping. I thought I was going to you know, actually animate, you know, make the characters come to life. He's like, no, they're thinking about rotoscoping the whole thing. I'm like, why? They're like, oh, this game Prince of Persia did it and everybody likes it. I'm like, Okay. All right. Well, you know, I'll work at Lucas. I didn't know I was going to be rotoscoping, but sure. So for like a day, I rotoscoped and uh, over it, and I was kind of bored. And then occasionally somebody would come in and uh, talk to me a little bit, like say hi, but they didn't really interview me. And uh, it's funny. My first day I showed up, I was like, I've never been to a job interview before. So I showed up in a, a suit and tie. So as soon as I walked in, I was like, oh, I'm overdressed. Everybody's like wearing T-shirts <laughs> and, and pants, you know, shorts and, you know, uh, baseball caps. And so I was like, okay. Yeah, I've heard that once you turn up to a job interview in the games industry in a suit, it's the last time you'll ever do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> definitely was for sure. And I had a really good tie too. So I was all proud of it. And um but yeah, she said, uh, Colette said, oh no, you don't, you don't have to wear a suit and tie. I'm like, thank God. So the next day I didn't, you know, the next was, shorts uh, and a t-shirt. I was wondering at the time, was there kind of a, a, a division in the animation world of, you know, people that wanted to do like traditional animation and uh, hand-drawn stuff and people that were going on to digital? Because I know like companies like Disney resisted going to that digital way for uh, quite a long time, actually. Oh yeah, yeah. My at my school, that was the biggest thing. It was like so. There was like two rivalries in my school. One was computer graphics versus traditional animation. Another one was like Disney versus Don Bluth. 
Um, for some reason, there was like a rivalry between people like Don Bluth and, and Disney. But there was a handful of us who loved working on the computer. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of good character animation out there. It was pretty stiff, and it was like mostly flying logos. So I mentioned that, that I was interested in computer graphics. Like, oh, that's so boring. It has no characters. It's got no life. Just flying logos. I'm like, well, have you seen this one about a lamp? You know, you know. Have you seen yeah. this? Uh, you know, this one about a, a a unicycle. This guy, John Lasseter, he's doing some good stuff with CG. I don't, I don't know. You know, and it finally won a Academy Award. He finally won a Academy Award for short for uh, Tin Toy, and that's when they started noticing. And my mentor was like, "Hey, you know, Disney was giving us a lot of money at the time. They gave us like a million dollars and bought us all these new computers and so forth." And my mentor's like, "Dude, you guys learn how to use computers." And they're like, "Nah, no, nah, I'm." I want to be like the traditional Disney guys, the old guys, you know, paper, computer. I don't want to work with a mouse. They were really against it. So there was a handful of us that did like it. And one of them was Pete Doctor. Pete Doctor did, you know, he did do traditional animation. You see all the student films, they're all paper animation. But he also did some computer stuff. And one of his computer stuff uh, films was called, he did a spoof of Luxor Jr. He called it Luxor Senior. And he did a, a, a bouncing, you know, Luxor lamp that was old and rickety. And playing around with the other Luxor lamps, and it just as a lark, like a short little thirty-second film. And John Lasseter saw it and loved it. Took it back to Pixar. Pixar thought it was great. And John Lasseter's like, "Yeah, we got to get that guy as soon as we, you know, as soon as he graduates, we got to get that Pete Doctor guy." Um, so yeah, that was you know by the fact that uh, Pete embraced computer graphics, you know, probably helped him you know be where he is now. You know, he's the director of Up and uh, Monsters Incorporated and Inside Out and um soul so he i think he's like running pixar now so he was like you know the superstar um, of that but the fact that he embraced it early on i think really helped his career well obviously i mean it worked out very well for you you know you placed very well at the time there you mentioned um you know the dig was um, one of the first projects that you're working on and i've always found the dig a really interesting project you know very different to a lot of the other games that lucas arts were making at the time and is it true that it was originally envisioned as a Steven Spielberg movie? I mean, what's kind of the backstory with The Dig? Just kind of let us know a bit about yeah. it. Yeah, well, what I heard is, I, well, I came in and worked on uh, 2.0. So anyway, uh, real quick, my animation test was fine. Uh, rotoscoping, obviously, that's easy to do. You're just tracing. And then I had a day left, and I animated my own just like fat dragon trying to fly and take off. And uh, apparently that's what got me the job. The rotoscoping did not help me get the job. It was fine, but it didn't show my animation skills. But just right. drawing, you know, I had, you know, a day left in my interview and I just animated a fat dragon trying to fly. And everybody, all the animators were like, no, that's it. That's that's cool. And, and uh, if I hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't have gotten the job. Uh, so as soon as I got the job, they're like, OK, we're doing this sci-fi game that there was a uh, there was an earlier version um but we won't talk about that <laughs> yeah it's like they wouldn't tell me anything about the earlier version They're like no it's a new one we're starting all over from scratch it's a steven spielberg game he loves games and he's been dying to do this as a game for a long time i'm like oh okay great spielberg's gonna see my animation i'm all excited um so what they told me and i'm gonna get this wrong and brian and, and noah know this better or noah knows it better so i think noah was in charge of it they call it noah's dig so i kept on hearing noah's dig they said the original idea was Spielberg wanted to combine Forbidden Planet with uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Those are two like classic films from the 50s and 60s. So Forbidden Planet is basically an alien planet that's in ruins. This high-technology alien civilization 
eventually um, killed themselves off and left their ruins behind. And then Sierra Madre is about these gringos going to Mexico to dig through the Sierra Madre mountains and get gold, but they get paranoid that each other's trying to rip each other off and they're going to shoot each other and steal each other's gold. They start fighting uh, with each other and getting suspicious. So Spielberg mm-hmm. wanted that dynamic in the scenario of the alien world with the ruins. I so, forget. Um, I forget how popular Light Forbidden Planet was. Um, I, I used to work in theatre, and there's so many productions of it, and it had that kind of Jetsons, um, future yeah. kind of vibe on it. Mm. Great, great play. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great movie. It doesn't age well. Um, if you watch it now, you're like, man, this is sexist. <laughs> this one <laughs> sexist movie, but the music's awesome and uh, the graphics and the robot is incredible, right? I mean, they just kept using that robot over and over again. So yeah, that was his idea. And then he thought, okay, th- this is, it could be a movie, but it's really expensive. Maybe I could do it as a TV show for um, amazing stories. So amazing stories that come out in like 88 or something. And uh, it was a TV show um, that he, pro- <laughs> excuse me, he produced. And uh, then he was like, yeah, it's too expensive. He looked at the budget and he's like, yeah, I can't pull this off. But he was playing LucasArts games at the time. He loved Monkey On. I think he played Loom and Monkey On. I'm not, I'm not sure. I know for sure he played Monkey On, uh, the first one. He basically said this would make a really good game. So he talked to George about it. And um, yeah, I guess they brainstormed some ideas. And with George, um, Dave Grossman would be a good person to interview about that. I think he was in a... Uh, a meeting where he was going to be one of the designers and writers on it. And um, I guess they were out at the LucasArts ranch, you know, out of the main house and they were in a conference room and they, they brainstormed a bunch of ideas. Uh, the ideas that I know Spielberg came up with for sure was he wanted a puzzle where there was some sort of a tentacle monster or serpent with one eye and it would shoot out a stun beam of light that would hit these sort of alien bats and then you would, um, then he would eat the bat, you know, it's sort of like um, what dolphins do with fish, like stun them and then eat them. Uh, and so he wanted a close-up of the characters cutting, killing the monster, that and cutting the uh, eye lens out of it, out of the eyeball, so it was like gory and gooey. And then you take that lens and put it on the flashlight and shine it at these bats who are filling up this cave, and you'd scare them away, and then you could go in the cave. So he wanted like a lot of gory stuff. He, you know, he wanted when uh, Link gets his arm stuck in a, a crevice in the water, the cave starts filling with the water. He wanted a close up of them cutting his hand off. Um, so I'm like, man, Spielberg's into gore. I had no idea. But, you know, look at Jaws, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it goes. Yeah, there's some blood in that. There's some gore in there. So those are some of his ideas that we incorporated in the, in the story. Um, I think that was Brian Stig. So I came on. Right as Brian Stiggs started. So that was, like I said, 1992. Uh, and they just filled me in on all this. And I was like, okay, all right, I'll jump in. Let's, let's start animating. So by the, by the time he had completely redone the story, got, he they didn't reuse any of the artwork from the previous one. And I think a lot of the artists were pissed off about that. You spend a year on a game and then you do all this great art. Because there's a ton of good art in there, like Ian McKaig, you know, and Terry Whitlatch. And... Um, you know, Larry Ahern and I, you know, uh, a bunch of other people um, worked on it and uh, and then it got all thrown away. And uh, I think a lot of the artists were like, hey, how about um, how about we save this game and reuse it? Uh, you reuse the artwork and rebrand um, it as something else like a Boba Fett game. So they put together this pitch 
and said, hey, let's make it a Boba Fett game. He goes on this planet. He's hunting somebody down. He's got to solve these puzzles. And we'll re- reuse the artwork and just make it a Star Wars game. And I guess marketing did not like it for some reason. They said something like, Boba Fett's not very popular. He's a minor character. And we were like rolling our eyes and just scoffing, going, are you kidding me? You know, come on, Boba Fett, are you kidding me? He's like one of the most popular characters and you know, woefully underdeveloped and underused. We should totally do that. So when I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a bummer, man. Uh, but Brian's like, no, screw it. We're going to redo this, and um, we're going to start from scratch. And my initial um, impression of the dig was is very much like that book Sphere by Michael Crichton. Um, it, it was very Michael Crichton-y, you know, because Michael Crichton was very popular at the time. They were working on Jurassic Park. So to me, yeah. it felt like he was combining Spielberg's idea with, like, Sphere or Jurassic Park, where you have a bunch of these small, smart scientists who kind of screw each other over in this, you know, scientific environment. Um, so that that was my first impression of the dig. Yeah, I know it had a very long development cycle. I think, and we had Noah Ronnie mentioned that initially it was brainstormed in 1989, and then it came out in 1995, which was yeah. very long for a, for a game at LucasArts to be developed. So, did I mean, did it feel like a very ambitious project? For you to start on there, because obviously it was when CD-ROM was taken off as well, so you had this big medium and lots of storage space that you could take advantage of. Yeah, um, I think what happened, and this is my theory, you know, I, I stayed on Brian's version and then Sean's version, which was kind of based on Brian's version, Sean Clark's version. Um, my theory is, is because Spielberg's name was attached to it and it was getting all this hype and all this marketing and PR that a lot of times the directors would get ambitious or overly ambitious and want to do something super great that would live up to Spielberg's name and focus less on just getting the game done. So it was more like we got distracted in making a spectacle than we were at making a game, uh, if that makes sense. And there was a lot of pressure, too, because uh, Ron Gilbert had left the company and he took Scum with him, basically. And he was supposed to update Scum, but it was kind of slow. And there's this argument between LucasArts and Ron Gilbert. You have to ask Ron Gilbert about it. I, I don't think they can talk about it too much, though, because there's some legal you know, um, NDAs they signed. But uh, LucasArts decided to make a new game engine from scratch at the same time that they were doing um, the dig, development of the dig, all the art and the programming. And um, really couldn't get much done until that engine was done. I forget what it was called. Um, called Story Droid or Landru or something else. And uh, it was not coming together. It was taking forever. Uh, and then Brian, on top of that, had to make it a beautiful-looking game. So we had some ILM CG effects you know, for some cutscenes. And then we had to have a lot more cutscenes. And we had three characters, or four characters, actually, at one point. And then we had to do all these special effects and all this stuff. So we had a, you know, Brian was used to working with one artist on Loom, right? Um, I forget his name, Mark Ferrari, and you could change stuff instantly because you really had no memory, right? So you're right. Now that we suddenly had memory, we were like, oh, we can put all sorts of stuff on here. So our budget went from, you know, I don't know what Loom was made for, but my guess would be like 100000 to the dig, which was now going to be like 500000 600000 So you had one ad animator, one artist, you know, on the Loom and maybe a couple programmers, and now suddenly you need you know, three programmers, four programmers, and you need four animators and you need two background artists and you need a special effects guy, you know, and more sound and more music. So it became an actual production. So poor Brian, he goes from, you know, writing text adventures to doing a little bit of graphics to suddenly, boom, he's got to 
you know, what he used to call an army of artists. And that was kind of frustrating for all the project leaders because they were used to being able to make changes really quick because it was just, you know, a few lines here or there. You know, I'll take this little animation here and throw it in there. Um, you know, and I have a funny joke. You know, it's two weeks out and the game's not out yet. Oh, I can type in a funny joke, you know, you know, because I'm not recording it. I'm not, you know, there's no animation involved in it. So you could make changes and improve the game right up until the game could come out. But the big conflict here was... Um, you know, we were doing like a you know fairly major production, and we really couldn't make the kind of changes at the last minute that Brian and all the other project leaders would want on their production. Uh, even Tim was frustrated by that when he was working on Full Throttle. He's like, "Ah, oh, damn! I used to be able to come up with new ideas, you know, halfway through production, and it would be no big deal. But now we can't because we had to storyboard the whole thing." And so it just became such a big production. And then Brian, you know, had to write all the dialogue. He had to, you know, he wanted to art direct everything. And that kind of drove the art director a little nuts. And, you know, I understand it because he used to be the guy in charge of everything, you know. And now he's, you know, now you have to, uh, you know, you have to delegate responsibility to the art director and the lead programmer and the lead game designer. And there's a producer involved now. So it was, it was really too much transition i think for brian and the company at the time and i think that's why he ultimately just said uh, I, uh somebody else has got to take over for me you know i've got it this far but you know this is enough for me i totally get it now i was kind of annoyed with him at the time for you know giving up on the game but now i look back on it i'm like no you're, you're right man this is this was you were asked to do way too much so i totally get it now it was a very kind of like as you said transitional time with the graphics in like point and click like stuff that came mm. later um day of the tentacle and uh, full throttle they were kind of completely different whereas the dig seemed like it was that old traditional kind of scum style but really well drawn and then uh apparently i had some effects that were done by industrial light and magic as well which in the cutscenes, kind of you know, just gave it that higher quality. Yeah, we actually had a, a, a ILM animator uh, that worked on the game too. He did a lot of the um, in-game effects, a lot of the light effects, because the aliens in the game used a lot of um, manipulation of light and energy and created their own type type of light. So we had a really good effects animator from ILM come over and do all the hand-drawn effects. He was really good. He'd work on paper and he'd smear pencil on stuff and then we photograph it and then invert it so you know all his pencil would instead of black it'd be white and then we'd uh, layer it in there and it would glow and it, his stuff was amazing i mean the dude even got an academy award for some of the animation he did so gordon baker this guy did a great job and then ilm was doing cg effects for the um the spaceship it was like a 12-sided um dodecahedron and uh, the asteroid would morph into a dodecahedron and then zoom off into space, dragging all the stars with it. And then it would land on the planet. Um, so, yeah, uh, a lot of them looked, yeah, looked really good. I mean, we did a lot of CG2 in-house, but um, we definitely got a lot of help from ILM initially. For those Some of the cutscenes were, like, animated as well. Um, like, you know, a, a, a traditional kind of cartoon style. It wasn't just done in within the engine, like some... All yeah. the point and clicks did as well. That was the technology we got from Rebel Assault where you could stream the video uh, onto the screen. Um, so we took that uh, technology from Rebel Assault and uh, used that for our cutscenes. So that way we could pre-render them and then just play them like a little movie um, during those scenes. Well, that makes sense, yeah. Um, because yeah. I forgot how, how big a game that was before as well. So Yeah, Rebel Assault. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, uh, Vince Lee, the guy who... Um, you know, created um, the technology and was the project leader in Rebel Salt. 
he figured out a way of just treating the CD-ROM as like a laser disc, basically, you know, just streaming a little video right off at the same time. You could only move like 40% of the screen. So you had your first compression. So you had to create a compression algorithm. So yeah, it was a pretty innovative technology at the time. Uh, and we just, you know, we took advantage of it because we were looking at full throttle and they were doing it too. And we were like, okay, yeah, we, we've got to do this as well. I remember when Sean Clark took over, he was like, no, I'm just going to make a traditional LucasArts event, you know, click game. I'm not going to pay attention to Spielberg, you know, you know, not Spielberg, but all the hype surrounding Spielberg and Lucas working together. We're just going to make a good solid adventure game based on these ideas. I'm going to take what Brian did and I'm going to change the story. Um, in certain areas significantly, but keep a lot of it, you know, reuse a lot of the artwork. That was one thing they decided definitely when Brian left his version of the dig uh, and Sean took over management said, no, no, we're going to reuse all the art. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, that saves us time. Bad thing is we have to create new art and it's going to look old when it comes out, you know? So we're going to have older technology and smaller characters, whereas full throttle was making bigger characters and doing something a little more cinematic. So that was one of the things we got criticized for. It's like, oh, this game kind of looks old. I'm like, well, that's why we have the cutscenes. We make the cutscenes at least look modern and new, but yeah, the graphics are going to be smaller. You know, the characters are the same size as Guybrush was. Um, that's because that's what the artwork was designed for. Uh, so yeah, we ended up just using scum again and, um, but I, you know, I talked to Sean, I'm like, look, if we're going to look anywhere near modern, you know, and people expect this to be cinematic, we're going to have to have cutscenes, And, uh, you know, we're going to have to have really high-end, well-rendered cutscenes. And he's, I, you know, eventually talked him into it. And at one point he wanted to do live action. You know, it's like, oh, no, no, let's not do live action. Because uh, Rebel Assault had done some live action, which is kind of my fault. Uh, you know, I'll tell you about that. You know, if you ask me about Rebel Assault, I'll tell you an interesting story about that. Well, full motion video was the in thing then, wasn't it? Mid, mid-90s. Everyone thought it was going to be the, the way that all games would go for a yeah. while at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I'm kind of responsible for that too, by accident. Um, so after I got off um, Brian's dig, you know, Sean needed some time to rework the story. I ended up working on Rebel Assault. And uh, so they had little cutscenes in Rebel Assault. But what they would do is they would they would take a screenshot from Star Wars and kind of animate over it um, by hand to make it, you know, move and talk and have the characters, you know, but it was pretty limited. And when I took over, I was like, oh, this is really hard to do. This is tough. You know, they wanted me to do some cutscenes. I'm like, this is a pain in the butt. And because I thought this was really tedious, I, I went to management. I said, hey, um, can we just go up to the ranch, you know, to the barn where they keep all the props and, and costumes. Can we just go up there and put the, put people in it and we can just film them. And then I could put that into the scene and I could paint and Photoshop. There's this new program called Photoshop. I can make it look realistic, like a bar. Cause there was a scene where these guys, these pilots hang out in this bar, you know, on the rebel base or it's a lounge or something like that. It's like, I could paint a realistic, you know, photographic looking background using this program called Photoshop. And then we could, I could put the live action in there and I could light it correctly. And it was the graphics were really low back then, uh, you know, what 420 or something. And, um, and I really, cause I really don't want to hand draw all this stuff cause it looks terrible. And uh, manager was like, well, um, sure. Well, let's go up there. Let me talk to the guy up at the ranch. And so he said, yeah, no problem. Uh, but then uh, the head of Lucasfilm heard about it. He's going, what, wait, wait, what you're going to film star Wars. Yeah, just for our video games, this little cutscene we're doing. It's like, whoa, 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 you can't film Star Wars. 
like, well, we're not filming Star Wars. It's just for a video game. He's like, no, no. George has this rule that only he can film anything at any of the companies. Because I guess at one point, ILM was decided that they wanted to make a film, like their own mm -hmm. film with a script and everything, not involving George Lucas, to show off some of their special effects because they had new special effects techniques. And George got pretty pissed about that. He's like, no, only Lucasfilm makes films. ILM does not make films. They only do effects for films. So he's like, well, I got to get this approved by George. So George is going to come down to LucasArts and take a look at your scene, Bill, and see if it's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pressure. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay. So we had filmed it in front of a green screen. I had the, um, we had local, my boss, um, uh, Colette Michaud was one of the characters and we had another programmer. Put him in the uh, orange suit and we lit it and everything and we filmed it. And I thought it was a little overdone, the production, the number of people involved. I'm like, this is, this is. For the graphics, you know, for the level of graphics we have, we really don't need all this stuff. And uh, this is excessive. But uh, we did it, and I put it in. I put the scene together. And um, the next day, George is going to show up, and, and we, I was going to show it to him. I thought he was, I was just going to show it to him at my desk, right? No, they set up this conference room with donuts and coffee and all this stuff. And I showed up to go into the scene and, my you know, go into the conference room. And my boss goes, oh, uh, yeah, you can't go in. I'm like, why can't I go in? It's my scene. She goes, it's uh, full. What do you mean the conference room is full? The whole conference room is full? Yeah. George is there. Uh, president of Lucasfilm is there. The head of LucasArts is there. The project leader is there. The producer is there. Oh, wow. The head of marketing is there. Uh, we just don't, and I'm there. And we just don't have room for you. I'm like, but it was my idea. <laughs> it was my <laughs> idea. Oh, how did I not get in this goddamn conference room? I want to see George talk about my scene, goddammit. Uh, so as a Star Wars fan, I thought about it. I was like, hey, am I the first person to film some live action Star Wars since George Lucas and Return of the Jedi? And I was thinking, yeah, maybe I am. Maybe I'm the first person to film some live action, you know, Star Wars footage. That's kind of a dream come true, Bill. Think, think about that, that. That's very cool. That is very cool. Yes. <laughs> so um, nobody thought to do that before. Nobody thought it was a good idea. And then when we did it and I showed it to him, and George is like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, it's kind of a wide shot. I would, I would do a closer up shot. You know, I was like, well, I can't do a closer up shot because we only move 40% of the screen. I didn't want it to be all, you know, artifacted. So we had to do a longer shot than we would have wanted to do for technical reasons. It's like, yeah, no, it's fine. It looks good. You know, keep doing more of it. This is the future, you know. I'm all for it. If it makes me money, I'm all for it. <laughs> you know, that's not a <laughs> verbatim quote, but that's essentially it. So everybody's like, oh, all right. George is okay with that. So we ended up doing that for the rest of, um, I think Rebel Assault 2, they went like went to town. But George was like, you know, you're kind of luckier than I am because you guys got 320 by 200 graphics. And uh, I'm doing like film, you know, which is 300 DPI, you know, super high res. Uh, but since you're so low res, you can do all these effects that looks just fine. You know, you don't have to worry. You have to do a big production. You could just film in the conference room or something. I'm like, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> we didn't need to. You need to take it to a green screen and all this. That it was is not. It was overdone. Um, so after that, everybody's like, "Oh yeah, let's start doing live action." Oh cool, we can do live action. I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Really? You're gonna do live action? All right, fine, whatever." So yeah, when that 3D graphics got good enough and they didn't have to anymore, I think it was a bit of a blessing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank God for uh, you know dark forces coming along saying, "No, no, we don't need to do that." So, but that was that was pretty cool. It was just you know. It was a little chapter that was kind of a Star Wars fulfilling uh, fantasy of mine. So, um, but it came about in a way that was kind of 
silly in the fact that I was being lazy and didn't want to have to draw each individual realistic character and, and make them animated when I just thought, oh, we could just film it, you know. <laughs> well, you also worked on um, the third Monkey Island game. Now, you know, I was a massive fan of Monkey Island 1 and 2. Yeah, me And too. then um, you worked on The Curse of Monkey Island. And obviously that was the first game without Ron Gilbert. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time people were a bit like, oh, what's it going to be like without Ron, you know, is it going to work without him? In the end, you know, a game that I think most of the fans love that game. I thought it was brilliant. And obviously, I imagine there was a lot of pressure on the team to follow up the first two games without Ron. What was it kind of like and how did you get involved in this project? Well, um, I had never played Monkey Island. So when I got the job at LucasArts, it wasn't going to start for another month. So I was like, oh, I better get up on the speed on on, the adventure game. So I wanted that Fate of Atlantis game that Colette had showed me. And uh, it wasn't out yet. So I was like, is there any other LucasArts games? Like, there's this Monkey Island 2 game. I'm like, oh, Pirates. I love Pirates. I used to work at Disneyland. I love Pirates of the Caribbean. That's great. I'll, I'll play it. So me and my brother, who was in high school at the time, we'd sit in his room and we'd start playing this Monkey Island game. I'm like, this game is freaking funny. This is, this is awesome. The art's great. Uh, the animation's good. The writing is awesome. It's funny. It's a fun game. And I was totally addicted. I, to- I just fell in love with it like right away. And when we got Fate of Atlantis, finally, I was like, Fate of Atlantis is cool. I'm enjoying it. But I have to say, this Monkey Island game is much funnier. Uh, Monkey Island 2. And so when I got to LucasArts, uh, it was funny because they put me in a um, – they didn't have an office space for me. So we had this kind of open plan. And they had to put my my desk basically kind of in a walkway, a hallway. Uh, so I had no room whatsoever. I just had a desk, and then people would walk behind me constantly. So, But what's cool, though, is at lunch I'd be playing Monkey Island 2 because uh, I'd start playing it. And um, Tim Schafer and um, – you know, Dave Grossman would walk by and they'd talk to me about the development of the game and tell me all these cool stories about it while I was playing the game and give me hints and, and so forth. So I got to talk to the actual makers of the game at the time. I was like, oh, that's cool. How often do you get that? You're playing a game and the actual, you know, developers come by. And, you know, by that time, Ron was gone. But, you know, I started playing that and Monkey on One after that. And I was like, oh, these games are awesome. I totally want to work on this because I was a big fan of animation. And, you know, I worked at Disneyland. I was a big fan of Disneyland and Pirates of the Caribbean. So I was totally down. I kept on pushing. For us to do another Monkey Island game, but they were like, oh, the Monkey Island 2 sales weren't that great, and Ron's gone, and I'm like, really? We'll never get to do a Monkey Island game? Nope, no, we're probably never going to do that. Um, so I was like, oh, that's a bummer. But then, when Larry Ahern was done with um, Full Throttle, and he wanted to be a project leader, and Jonathan Ackley, who was done with um, The Dig, you know, they said, okay, why don't you guys team up, come with an idea, maybe you can pitch Monkey Island, and because we haven't done a Monkey On game in a while. And uh, they're like, okay, sure, let's do that. That'll be fun, because you know, Larry Ahern had worked on Monkey On 2 uh, with Ron, he, so he knew Ron well. And Jonathan you know, had worked on LucasArts stuff. I don't think he worked on Monkey On, but he was pretty funny and a good programmer and a good writer. And those two were very you know, good friends, and they got along really well. And uh, he pitched me some of his ideas for Monkey Island. And I was like, oh, yes, that sounds cool. And they just locked themselves in a room for like three months and just came up with a good story. And I was dying to work on it. And I just finished the dig. And I was like, oh, I really want to work on it. But they hadn't made up their mind about who was going to work on it or what kind of style they were going to do. So I was like, oh, come on, please. Let me do it. Let me do it. I even like um, me and my wife even honeymooned um, in the Caribbean just because I wanted to do some reference photographs of the Caribbean. And at Disney World, nice. so I could take pictures of Disney World, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. And I even brought back a bunch of uh, souvenirs and so forth. And, and, you know, mind you, I was still not officially on the game yet. 
And uh, I was going to say, did you put that through as a business expense in the trip to the? Yeah, country? I should have. I should have. <laughs> so I, I I brought in all this pirate stuff that I bought at Disneyland. I, I gave it to Jonathan and Larry to put in their office and decorate their office. So it was a little, just a little bribe, you know, just a little bribe, because they hadn't decided yet which way they wanted to go. But everybody else in the art department was like, "No, dude, you got to go with Bill. Bill totally is." this is up his alley. You know, you, you, you should definitely be working with him. And so I still subtly kind of would, you know, push for me to be on the game. And I think they were just, you know, at the time, I think they were just holding their cards close to their chest, but ultimately well, I did a bunch of tests for them. And, uh, you know, I think they were, you know, blown away by it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, they, they, uh, they hired me on. Uh, the funny thing is I just assumed we were going to make the game look like Monkey Island 2, you know, with the, that kind of marker style that Peter Chan and um, Steve Purcell came up with. Because uh, they were the main artists on that. Peter Chan was like this famous artist who worked at LucasArts, but then went on to work on movies. And then Steve Purcell, you know, Sam and Max, the comic artist who's now like a Pixar director and writer. Um, they put together the look for Monkey on 2, and I was like, oh, I love that look. And uh, I started trying to copy it, you know, and do it. And then Larry's like, no, 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 no. I want to do something completely different. I go, oh, really? Okay, that sounds cool. You know, um, are fans going to be okay with that? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's long enough. We're, we're changing the resolution. We got more colors now. Um, we're going to use cutscenes. You know, we're going to use a, a new scum engine and all this stuff. So it's going to it's going to look a lot different. So, you know, it's fine. It's been five years. I was like, okay, cool, cool. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And he was like, oh, I love this avant-garde kind of stuff. Uh, I like this TV show Duckman, and I like um, – I like the look of editorial cartoons. And so when he and I would kind of sketch, you know, some stuff and he'd tell me what he was wanted to do. And uh, I would sketch some stuff too, but Jonathan was more traditional. He wanted it to look like a Disney film. So I'm like, okay, I'll see if I can combine both of what you guys want together. Cause I like, you know, I obviously love Disney stuff. So I was like, okay, I'll use the bright colors and, you know, the exaggerated shapes for a cartoon and go a little avant-garde with it uh, with Larry and now there's these really exaggerated shapes. So I thought, well, what I could do is treat every object as if it's its own character and it has its own emotion and attitude. And uh, like you would do with a cartoon character, you know, if uh, Bugs Bunny's angry, he would have an angry stance. So if he's sad, he'd be hunched over. So I thought, okay, I'll do that with the actual environment. So I'll give this like, this fortress tower, I'll have him stick his chest out and, and look like it's in defiance. And this other place, I'll have it look kind of chaotic and relaxed, like it's a cool place to chill out. Uh, and, you know, I would try and give every, you know, object its own kind of, you know, feel, you know, sometimes more, you know, exaggerate it more than others. The more weird I got, the more Larry liked it, but uh, the more Jonathan didn't like it. But Larry was the art director, so I was like, I'm, I'm going to go with him. So ultimately we worked out some stuff. It took us a long time. Norman LucasArts doesn't allow people to spend this much time in pre-production. And uh, that was kind of frustrating for the animators because Larry would go back and forth on the character design. And they're like, well, we got to nail this character design down soon because we got to start animating. Um, so they eventually compromised and came up with the final design. Larry wanted something a little more weird. Um, but the animators like, yeah, we can't really animate that. We have to do something a little more traditional. So they sort of, split the difference and came up with something that was traditional, but kind of weird at the same time or different exaggerated. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how we started on it. So the technique we came up with was uh, I was going to draw it on pencil um, with these weird exaggerated shapes. And I would do thicker lines for um, the outsides outlines of things, and then do a little more sketchier line for the light details. 
and I'd scan it in the computer and then we I'd paint it in Photoshop with the high res colors. And then we would take it into another program, Debabilizer, if you remember that, and then we would drop it down to 240 colors. But I noticed, though, that we had 640 by 48 graphics that we didn't need um, that many. We didn't need more colors. It was still only 256 colors because there were, the pixels were so small that two different colors next to each other in your eye would kind of blend to make a third color. So because resolution suddenly got much higher, we really didn't need to go above 240 colors because um, these colors would blend together at such high resolution. And uh, so, yeah, that was basically um, how we came up with the technique. Now, pressure-wise, you're asking about the pressure. I was confident we could make a good Monkey on game. So I played Monkey on 1, Monkey on 2 like crazy, and I saw what Larry and Jonathan were doing, and I go, this seems right out of, you know, that same world. And they brought in a couple of writers, too. They also did some programming. They were funny you know, as hell. And they would write some funny dialogue and they were big fans of Monkey Island. Uh, they knew it even better than I did. They knew like all the details and all the inside jokes. And, and so they would make a lot of references to the previous game. So I was like, I don't know, this, this seems pretty good. I mean, the engine was already set. It was, it was going that we used all this temporary art and the game was already programmed like right away before we did all the art. And uh, it was, uh, it was looking, it was looking good. I mean, we could play the game right away. And then me, Larry and Jonathan and, um, our lead animator locked ourselves in a conference room for like two weeks and kind of wrote all the cutscenes and storyboarded them, came up with all sorts of gags and jokes and so forth. And yeah, I thought it was pretty funny when we pitched it to people, they thought it was pretty funny. So we felt pretty confident that we were going to make a good game. That it was going to be funny. It was going to look good. It, the design was good. Everybody approved it. Um, you know, all the other project leaders thought it was good. Um, so yeah, we felt confident we were going to make a good game. Um, but there was still, you know, some resistance to, you know, the fact that we weren't, you know, we weren't Ron Gilbert and how dare us touch, you know, something so great. But my thought was, well, look, you know, Stan Lee didn't do all the best Spider-Mans. You know, Stan Lee created this awesome Spider-Man and he, you know, created all these great villains and, and um, you know, um, the guy who created Batman, the two guys who created Batman, you know, they did they did a great thing, but it was uh, other artists picked up, you know, those characters and did great things with them. Um, and then another artist, you know, and more and more comic book artists, you know, built on these characters and did great things. And that's the way I looked at it. I looked at it. This is a franchise that Ron created and now we're just picking it up and now we're going to do our version of it. And having strong characters, I guess, helps out as well, doesn't it? These, you know, iconic characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, he had a slightly different interpretation than we, uh, you know, Ron and Larry's interpretation of Guybrush was a little bit different because, you know, Ron felt like Guybrush was probably like a little brother to Elaine, whereas we had more of a, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, sexual tension feel that we wanted to have to the game. Mm. Uh, so that's where we kind of differed uh, in the characters. And I think our Guybrush is a little nicer, and I think Ron's is a little more of a stinker. I always think of him as, uh, <laughs> you know, a little bit more. I think Ron's version is a little bit more like um, Bugs Bunny, you know, yeah. Real, kind of a troublemaker and kind of a smart ass. And I think our version is kind of like that, but he's a little more, you know, he's probably a little more, you know, friendlier and, and uh, sensitive. Um, so, but people liked it. So that was cool. We were shocked by how much people liked it. I mean, I thought people would like it, but I did not think it was going to be this massive, you know, hit and influence that it was. I mean, I'm still doing monkey on art to this day because people 
are paying me to do it. Not annoyed, but I, I'm looking at a painting right now. I'm doing it for a guy who's painting me, paying me a few thousand bucks to actually paint a scene from Monkey Island, a new scene. Like um, it was a, a discarded design for the chicken shop, and uh, he loved it. Wants me to do it, and it's not part of the you know Lucas Arts doesn't own it, so I'm not breaking their copyright. And I'm yeah, you know, I'm sitting here with real actual paint, not digital painting, a Monkey Island background to this very day. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, it's a, it was amazing. I mean, I got, you get fan email and and uh, people just you know loving it. So I was like, wow. Well, I think as well, you know, the, the fact that, that that franchise has continued to be a fan favorite, you know, a bit of a cult classic. And, you know, obviously Ron Gilbert has recently uh, started making new Monkey Island games again with Return to Monkey Island. I mean, have you played that? What, what did you think of it, if so? Well, I'm in the middle of actually we're going to uh, play in his previous game, um, Thimbleweed Park. Um, so yeah. I'm still in the middle of that. So I'm not going to delve into I have two other adventure games I'm, I'm wanting to play. Uh, so as soon as I'm done with Thimbleweed Park, I'm going to jump on those as uh, Crown and Pawns. Good luck. Uh, I have some um, friends who worked on that. Good luck hunting the uh, dust in Fimbleweed Park. Oh, yeah, I know. That's a task. (laughs) I have. I have. I got 50 (laughs) pieces so far, I think. So uh, I'm I'm about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, Then I'm going to play Crown and Pawns. A couple of my friends worked on that, and uh, so that looks fun. And then, yeah, then I'll work on them, and then I'll play uh, Monkey Island. So I played it a little bit at the beginning, but I was like, no, I will not finish the other games before I get to it. I know a lot of people are giving... Ron and their production team, their artists, a lot of trouble because of the uh, yeah. radical change in the style. But I think it's pretty cool. Um, but also, yeah, I like it. Yeah, I think it works for what they have to do. So adventure games, you know, cost a lot to make, and you need a lot of rooms. You know, you need a lot of backgrounds, a lot of locations. So you got to do it fairly quickly. Um, the way we solved it with Kirsten Allen is we did it. We did with pencil outlines, and that's much faster. So you draw it in pencil, and then you color underneath it. And that's much faster than the kind of technique I used for a vampire story and, and ghost ghost pirates, uh, where I just painted it, you know, fully rendered. Uh, that's a lot slower and a lot more expensive, and you know, caused that game to be very expensive. But it looks great. But I kind of made this point too when I was art directing. I was working at Midway, and I was a third-party art director there. I tried to point that out that Grand Theft Auto, the original, is not graphically a great game great looking game Mm. but what they did is they used really good colors and they reused really good lighting so if you don't have a lot of budget for polygons and textures and and all the shaders but if you use good lighting and good um color schemes it it looks really good i mean i remember going to a concert i think it was the cure and they had nothing special going on in their on their set it was really boring but it was like you know it's all girders and metal and stuff and it was pretty boring but the lighting artist suddenly made this concert beautiful and awesome it was great the, his his you know his techniques and the way he was doing the lighting with the music was just beautiful so i really feel like 50 to you know maybe more percent 70 percent of any art really has to do with your color and your lighting um and i think that's what this new monkey on game has it has really good color and really good lighting and i know it's got a simplistic style that some people don't like they want things more rendered and shaded but it's got really good graphic design and it's really beautiful to look at. And I think it's nice that each Monkey Island game has their its own kind of look. You look at the first Monkey Island, it's like Mark Ferrari pixel painting. That guy's awesome. And then uh, you look at the next one, and it's Marker. Marker, um, all that stuff was done on Marker and scanned in, and it looks great. And then we did our version with pencil and digital, you know, and, and that looks good. 
And then they did full rendered 3D for the next one, you know, kind of like the Grim Fandango technique. And yeah. uh, that looks cool. Looks like a, a cool little toy set. It's got a different feel. And then obviously Telltale did their version, and then we got this version. And this is our, you know, it's it's more radical than the other ones, but that's cool. I mean, it gives more life to it. So uh, I think people should really give it a second look or give it a second chance and and really appreciate what they've done, which I think is is pretty is pretty special and very I think it's very beautiful. So I'm looking forward to playing it farther than I have, but I'm going to finish Thimbleweed Park, which I think is awesome too. I think Mark Mark Farr did an awesome job on that game. Only so many hours in the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Bill, let's talk about what you're doing these days. Because, I mean, uh, you did touch on um, a vampire story. Um, so, obviously, you founded your own studio in, in 2002. Um, and that was one of the games you, you released since then. And actually, you, you've brought that game back recently so people can play a vampire story now on a Zoom platform. And uh, very soon, I believe it's going to be coming to Steam, you mentioned to me before we started recording as well. So, tell us a bit about this then and um, why you decided to bring the game back for fans. Sure. Uh, so yeah, Vampire Story. Um, so I like doing adventure games. You know, at LucasArts we started doing less and less adventure games. So um, so I worked on Indiana Jones, and that was more of a Tomb Raider game. And then um, worked on a Boba Fett game, which is like a shooter. And I was like, eh, I really love to do an adventure game. And uh, where I get my ideas for things is usually I'm just sketching in a book or doodling in, uh, on paper. And you know, I come up with a character or an idea. And I just draw it, and I think it's fun. Uh, but then sometimes I start thinking about the character, like who is this character, what's their backstory, so forth. So I, I was noodling one time on that same cruise ship that you know I took before I went to start working on Monkey Island uh, on my honeymoon. I was doodling this character um, that was inspired by Edward Gorey, who's kind of like a gothic illustrator, does a lot of ink and pen stuff, and is one of the inspirations for Tim Burton. And he does a lot of you know kind of macabre you know, humorous little cartoons. And I was designing my own version of his um, style, but with my style mixed in of a vampire girl and her bat companion. And I started thinking about the story behind it. And the next page next to the sketch, I started writing out this whole story. And I was like, you know, this might make a good adventure game. But at the time, if you pitch something to LucasArts, they would own it. Um, So if they didn't want to do it, they would still own it. So you couldn't take it anywhere. So I really hated that. I know a lot of companies don't do that anymore. They like actually even let you work on your own game uh, sometimes, like Blizzard, Activision Blizzard does. Um, but I wish LucasArts had at the time, but I think legally they were just trying to cover their butt. Because um, mm. George, George's number one rule is don't get me sued. You know, don't don't let anybody get the keys to my treasure chest. You know, and that's what he told like the head of LucasArts. Number one thing, don't do anything that'll get me sued. <laughs> <laughs> don't make a good game just number one protect my assets um so you know that's why he has an army of lawyers that sue everybody at any time or used to anyway and so i never pitched it to lucas arts and i wanted to do it on my own so i worked at several different companies but in the meantime i was working on this game on my own and doing artwork for it and uh i finally uh put together a demo and uh got some marketing on it and uh yeah got some publishers in germany to uh fund the game so back in 2008 i i got a chance to make uh, a vampire story you know it was supposed to be a three game uh, series but at the time when the game came out it came out right in november of 2008 which is exactly when the economy took that super dive during the great recession so yeah. what we hoped would be a big hit ended up being kind of a medium hit and uh yeah so that that kind of put the damper on all of us and uh you know adventure games sort of 
didn't make as much money at that period of time and kind of kind of sapped all the energy out of my company and we just couldn't uh, move forward. We ended up making two games, uh, one for Crimson Cow and the other one for this company called DDP. And uh, DDP wanted pretty much a copy of Monkey On. I was like, I don't really want to do a copy of Monkey On. Um, but I will do something that takes place in the Caribbean and monkey style, a monkey on style. And uh, so they were like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And so that's when we came up with uh, Ghost Pirates of Voodoo Island, which is sort of based on an idea that Larry and Tim Schaefer uh, had, Larry Ahern had, where they're like, oh, I want to do an adventure game, but I want to do a short adventure game. So I don't have to spend like a year and a half on it. And Larry's like, yeah, I'd love to do stories about uh, characters other than Guybrush in the Monkey on Universe. And I remember talking to Larry about it too. I was like, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if there were four different characters and they had, you could jump between them and they would tell different stories. And so that's where the idea for Ghost Pirates uh, Voodoo Island came along. Uh, so again, that, that game came out at the same, you know, the same recession era and uh, they, it just didn't sell well. So it had a lot of fans and a lot of people were looking forward to it. Um, both the games the Vampire Story and Ghost Pirates. But uh, yeah, we the technique we used to make the game and having to make our own engine, you know, really sucked up our, our budget. So, and so I, th- I think you're right about what you said then as well. It was kind of the, the wilderness years for adventure games in many ways. It feels yeah. like you know, now seems like a good time for people who might have missed those games, you know, in the mid to late 2000s. Now that adventure games are, you know, really back on the map again, a good chance for them to try something they might have missed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, they seem to be having a bit of a renaissance. So, um, mm. yeah, so uh, Crimson Cow owned the rights to do Vampire Story 2 for a long time, and I finally bought them back, you know, 10 years later. And so I have um, I have the rights back, so I'm jumping right back in. We're going to start working on a Vampire Story 2. Uh, we already have uh, started working on but we're working on a demo, and then we hope the demo will we can pitch to publishers, investors, and they will... Um, you know, they'll uh, give us an advance to work on the game. So, so far it's coming together really good and it's, it's playable and working. We're just finishing up the animation right now and hopefully soon we'll be pitching it. Um, so yeah. And the vampire story one was on steam for a while and, uh, but it wasn't working well because it was made in 2008. It was supposed to work for, you know, uh, windows Vista and windows, uh, I forget whatever version was out at the time. Yeah. Yeah. XP, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it didn't, um, it's not working well on current games. And I wasn't really happy about that. So I found out about Zoom Platform and, um, you know, Jordan uh, Freeman of ZoomPlatform.com, Zoom-Platform.com uh, contacted me and said, hey, get we need to get this game on my platform because then it'll run great. So, you know, I saw a lot of comments where people were like, oh, I can't get it to work. And they had to jump through hoops and all these workarounds. And I felt bad. I was like, oh, I want people to play this game. And it goes through this cycle because it's a vampire story game around Halloween. People start wanting to play it and starts getting advertised. And then suddenly people start buying it again. And then they're like, Oh, it doesn't run on my modern machine. So I got really annoyed with that. So when Jordan came along, I was like, Oh, this is the perfect you know, solution. People can play it on here and um, on zoom platform. And, but I still needed it. You know, we both felt, you know, 90% of games are sold on steam. We really need to have it on steam. So we're working on that now too, to make sure that um, his platform uh, can run on steam and it should be on steam pretty soon. And that's what we're working on right now. So people who have not played a vampire story uh, within the next month or two, you'd be able to jump in. I mean, you could go right now to zoom platform.com and, and play it. Uh, but if you prefer steam, 
um, then you can uh, probably in a couple of months it'll be available. Well, I'll stick um, a link to it in our show notes as well, so um, people can go on and uh, and check it out. It's wonderful that you're still doing adventure games, Bill, and you know the uh, the passion still burns strong. So um, really appreciate you coming on and reminiscing with us, and uh, best of luck with a Vampire Story Two as well. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, we're having fun working on it, and I think people will like it. Uh, been, you know, I, I think it looks better than the first one, and we're just taking advantage of the new technology. The game's going to look even better than it ever has. So I just, I love it. Every time we make a new game, we got to take advantage of the new technology, and it looks better and better each time. So I'm really excited to be working on it and seeing how it turns out. But thank you so much for having me on. Sorry if I droned on way too long. Uh, I got a, you know, like I said, I've been in the industry for a long time. I got uh, a lot of stories and and backstories and and the yeah i know we just don't have time to go over all of them but it was fun thank you for having me on and and let me uh let me reminisce about it 